Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR. The Super LP joins us today on the program. Chris Duvos is a longtime veteran of the asset class and has a reputation as one of the most transparent and helpful supporters to early fund managers. In this episode, we discuss how his mindset has evolved as an LP, startups out of Stanford versus Berkeley, and if the valley is overfished, how the micro VC movement has changed, Chris's selection criteria, and what he looks for in managers, why he most often says no, the impact on LPs of companies staying private longer, the impact of new LPs coming into the venture asset class, how the LP community interacts, adversarial, collaborative, competitive, or otherwise, the areas where Chris can grow most as an LP, and we wrap up with his thoughts on co-investment alongside GPs, as well as follow-ons in later rounds. This was one of the most fun interviews I've done since starting TFR. Chris may be called the super LP, but he's also just a super guy, and I look forward to many more discussions with him. Here's the interview with Chris Duvos of VIA. Chris Duvos joins us from Palo Alto. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I'm just exuberant. (laughs) I can tell this will be a fun one already. Chris is a managing director at VIA, a $1.6 billion private equity fund of funds. Prior to joining VIA, Chris co-led the private equity program at TIFF, the investment fund for foundations. And prior to that, Chris worked on Princeton University's endowment team. Many of us know Chris as the Super LP, sporting his trademark red t-shirt under his Oxford and authoring the blog at superlp.com. He's truly one of the pioneering investors in the micro VC movement. Chris, it's been a big pleasure to have a chance to chat. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. In fact, can we end it right there? Because I don't think it can get any better. That was an awesome intro. And and, I I don't know if I can live up to that. Oh, boy. I think you're going (laughs) to surprise some people today. Let's start off with an easy one. Tell us about your path to becoming an LP. Sure. You know, it's funny because um, I've kind of stumbled around through my career. Um, I studied history in college and, and, you know, we had no pre-professional classes at Yale except uh, except Swenson's class and an accounting class in which, by the way, I got a C minus. Um, <laughs> although the irony is when I went back to business school uh, and took accounting again with the same professor, I got a top 10% grade. I got a distinction. And he asked me to TA and I said, Art, are you sure you want me to, to TA? Because as an undergrad, I got a C minus in this class. <laughs> and he said, hey, the second time must have been a charm. Um, but anyhow, so I was a history major and then I went into strategy consulting because because um, uh, it seemed like the liberal art of business. And, uh, and I was at this awesome firm monitor company that was like experimenting with all kinds of stuff. And I got into investing there and worked on our hedge fund and also on, on our uh, growth equity fund for a little bit. Um, and it was amazing because it was a whole new world. You know, as consultants, we were really afflicted by analysis paralysis. But in the investing world, you actually had to have an opinion and 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 make, you know, make a stand on things. So so that was really uh, quite compelling to me. But what was interesting was, you know, there I was, mind you, this is 1999, and I was on the hedge fund, and I was talking to these analysts and stuff, and companies and what have you, looking at internet stocks, and. I had this realization. I was like, oh my gosh, when we value companies on eyeballs, right? Because you remember that was a big valuation metric. When we value companies on eyeballs, (laughs) is each person one eyeball or two? 
And I was just like, you know, must be two, but like, I can't imagine that that, that would, that would be silly. Like, you know, so, so I, I was like, either way I was off by like, you know, a one X. Um, so I decided I needed to go back to business school to, uh, to, you know, get, learn what I'm, what I could about, you know, really how to value companies. Although I, I got to say, if I could take a quick detour and this actually kind of was a big signpost on my path, you know, as I was leaving uh, monitor to go to business school, I was also interviewing with this company that was like a proto general catalyst company. Like it was, it was this little company that Fialco and Cutler and all those guys had invested in. And, uh, for those who know general catalyst, they know Fialco is this like amazing presence. He's got this like Einstein hair and he's super energetic and he's this kind of awesome wild man. And I said, you know, I got to go to business school cause I actually have to figure out what, um, what I'm doing because I actually don't feel like I know anything about anything because oh, that's okay. <laughs> Nobody really does. <laughs> and then he looks at me and he goes, Duvos, Duvos, going to business school now is like studying geology during the gold rush. You got to get out in the field, or otherwise you're not going to make any money. Sure, and, right? And that was like it really kind of stuck with me in '99 because everybody seemed to be making making money. Um, and then I, but and I, here I was at business school spending money, uh, <laughs> but the market kind of reversed itself, and it reversed itself while I was, you know, kind of in in March of 2000, and I was doing my business school summer at Morgan Stanley, and uh, that was a real eye-opening experience because that's where I learned I wanted to be a principal rather than an agent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I bumped into my old college friend, Seth Alexander, who's now the CIO at MIT. And I said to him, I said, dude, tell me about what you guys do. Cause he was then in the Yale investments office. And he said, Hey dude, this is like the closest you'll ever come to managing your own multi-billion dollar fortune. Um, you know, we've got low liquidity needs, long time horizon, a single client, you know, endowments are the purest investors. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. Can, can you, can I come join you guys at Yale? And he goes, well, you, maybe you should talk to the Princeton guys instead. <laughs> so he plugged me into Andy at, at Princeton and, and Your that nemesis, was, huh? right. I, you know, I always said when, when, you know, all these managers would come in, uh, you know, VC, and, and private equity guys, and they had you know been doing the run all up and down the East Coast, and all the Harvard guys went. You know, Peter Dolan was a Harvard guy. He'd go down to Yale. All the Yale guys are are, are Yale Investments Office guys are Yale alums. They'd get to Princeton, and they'd say, you know, did you guys go to Princeton? And I'd say, well, no, actually, I went to Yale not once but twice. But as they said in Roman times, ubi panis, ibi patria, where there is bread, there is my country. And uh, Princeton's <laughs> got a lot of bread, and you get a you know, and then Dan Fader, our, our head of private equity. But he took me aside one day. He's like, you really got to quit it with the Latin shit. <laughs> <laughs> I took four years in high school and people still don't enjoy it. <laughs> I whip it out. Yeah, right. And so I, I kind of got rebuked there. But um, but it was fun to be behind enemy lines. It was a great portfolio and a great place to learn the business. So so when did the transition happen to, uh, to TIFF? And then, you know, why the decision to move to, to VIA? Sure. So TIFF it was an amazing opportunity because there I was at Princeton. I'd really learned a ton, and uh, and it was a you know really uh, just amazing platform for learning. But one of the challenges I felt was you know our endowment was so big, and I was starting to get a sense for some of the changes that were afoot in entrepreneurial finance, all the stuff that today we talk about when we talk about lean startup. And I felt like the whole venture industry was wrong-footed. Now Princeton will continue to make a lot of money. They, they're brilliant folks, but I thought, you know, where can I, where can I really kind of articulate this, you know, vision that I've got uh, with respect to smaller funds that are more nimble and can, you know, kind of address what back then we were calling the capital gap. And just at that moment, uh, David Salem, our founder at TIFF, called me up because they were looking for a new co-head of private equity. And he said, we've heard great things about you. You're a little bit of an iconoclast. So uh, we love people who think differently. Why don't you come come join us? And he had me at hello. And I joined and you know, David said, I want you to invest courageously. I want you to be a heroic investor. And I thought, well, I've got this heroic idea and either it's going to end really well or really badly. And he goes, look, chase it down. And so that led to this really awesome and fruitful period where, you know, this is now 04, 05, 06. I was getting really close with Josh Koppelman and, and, you know, Roger Ehrenberg in New York and the OATV guys and a lot of the kind of pioneers, Mike Maples, a lot of the pioneers of the, uh, 
of the you know what we what we then came to call micro VC crew yeah. invested in a bunch of them and uh, and my hypothesis then was was right and I was really really lucky to to do so as part of that to you know to get more involved in the fabric. I uh, moved out to California. I'd been living in Princeton and working at Tiff's office in Philly, uh, the Philly suburbs, and which which coincidentally was around the, literally around the corner from First Rounds, uh, Conshohocken office, and moved out to California in '08 to really kind of you know be among the you know among the the the, the startup folks in a, in a more kind of robust way and, you know, get, get differential insights that way. And so I moved out here in 08 and I said, you know, what's funny is I had a business plan for running that TIFF office. And I said, you know, in three years when the lease is up, either we'll have, you know, 20 people out here or zero people. And, you know, six <laughs> weeks after I opened the office, the global financial crisis hit and, you know, oh, all no. kinds of haywire and so the three years was up our lease was up we had a change of a good change of leadership um and as david you know stepped aside after a, a long and kind of storied tenure and they did, were deciding to centralize the footprint and but i had been enchanted by this sunny and magical land so uh <laughs> who's not who's not right it's 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 hard not to love california and so, and the, just the energy. And as a result, I decided to stay out here. And so I called up my old buddies at, at VIA, whom I'd known for like a decade. And I said, hey, can I come on board and, and launch, you know, a, a micro VC product and contribute to the other stuff that you guys have going on? And that was in 2011. Um, and it's been a, a ton of fun. Awesome. Awesome. Can you can you talk about how maybe your approach and or your mindset has either changed or evolved through your various roles at, at some of these firms? Sure. Um, you know, it's, it's been a great run. And one of the things that I've always appreciated is that the two great luxuries in life are the ability to set your own agenda and the ability to choose the people with whom you work. And I've been fortunate, uh, you know, kind of throughout my career to have, you know, those in, in, you know, some degree, you know, clearly at Princeton, I was part of a, a big team and we had a lot going on. And I was, you know, learning the business and I was trying to be humble about that. But once I got to VIA and had a lot of, or sorry, to TIFF and had a lot of, uh, 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 you know, kind of open field running. And then now here at VIA, where there's a real ability to kind of get excited about things and, and pioneer different things, I've been really lucky. And so, so the challenge has been, uh, and I've got great partners who are very much the yin to my yang, um, both Stephen Vicinelli at TIFF and now Jason Andrus at, at VIA, have been you know great kind of foils to my you know kind of reckless abandon, <laughs> and, and you know what what I learned at TIFF, which you know really has stuck with me, was you know Salem said I want you to be completely unafraid of being wrong and alone, because if you're afraid of being wrong and alone, which a lot of people are because career risk resides there, you'll never be right and alone. And he's like, I, I want you to be right and alone because that's where, you know, that's where, you know, differential returns lie. He called that the fortune and glory quadrant. And so at TIFF, I had a lot of opportunity to, you know, tinker with the portfolio. It was, it was a lot of evolution. We had a great core portfolio and, you know, kind of really build out, uh, you know, some of the, the micro VC exposures and, and, and flash, you know, the flashlight into some new areas. Um, at VIA, you know, it's, that's been a little bit of continuity and change as well, because I've had a lot of freedom and, and, you know, Jason's been a great, uh, you know, great supporter, uh, and, and foil, uh, and, you know, kind of conscience for my crazy. Uh, but, you know, initially I was doing a lot of, you know, what we'd call micro VC kind of conventional stuff. So first round true, you know, data collective, et cetera. But, more recently, I've gotten really enthralled with very sciencey stuff, and so uh, so we've done a lot of you know kind of hard tech focused stuff that's really quite frankly out of the mainstream. We just backed a fund uh, out of Boston called Rhapsody that I'm super excited about. Uh, ironically, my old friend David Salem is uh, is also an investor there, and uh, and you know I. I 
I show that to some of my friends and they're like, wow, this is really interesting, but, but crazy. And so in a <laughs> sense, you know, the fund that I, I manage, the tagline for the fund is doing the stuff that your investment committee won't let you do. And people <laughs> love that. And so we've got a great group of endowment and foundation investors and they love that, you know, kind of portfolio octane as well as, as, uh, as being able to, um, you know, get an insight, a pulse, you know, finger on the pulse of the valley. But that's been what's, you know, really kind of enthralled me from maybe the last 18 months is kind of this, this, you know, where is the real innovation happening, right? So, so like, like I said, the Rhapsody guys do a lot of stuff out of the universities. We've just invested in the house fund at Berkeley, which I'm super excited about. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I'm talking to, you know, this, there's the guys at Cyclotron Road up at, uh, up at Berkeley, you know, there's, there's all kinds of really, in fact, actually with all due respect to, to Stanford folks, if you could freely trade, if there were a market for, for universities, I would short Stanford and go long Cal. Wow. I think that's, that's a winning trade. Um, and, and half it, our and audience it, just, sh- I just turned off the, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry to all the, you know, the advertisers, you know, who are, are, are going to lose. No, just kidding. Um, no, the kidding aside though, the, uh, the, uh, the rationale there is, you know, Stanford is such an overfished pond and, right. um, and, you know, valuations are really high and, uh, yeah, there's a lot of, confidence let's let's call it that um among stanford entrepreneurs whereas i i find a ton of hunger among the the berkeley folks and the the talent is just as good and it's it's an absolutely amazing place and it's it seems to be so underfished and i don't i do know why every time i drive there from palo alto it's it's an ordeal um but as more and more venture firms are up in the city i think it's going to be easier and easier to get to and i think it's going to be a flourishing ecosystem well, it, you know, if we zoom out even further, is uh, is the Bay Area overfished? Mm-hmm. You know, this is this is a really important point. I think that the Bay Area is uh, is going to evolve over time into being more of a a money center. And it's going to look more like New York, but for the startup world, right? Mm-hmm. So Sand Hill Road slash South Park will be the Wall Street and you know, you'll have the kind of big incumbent corporate HQs. But I do believe the world is getting flatter. Um, but I also think it's hard for an ecosystem to sustain. Um, there, there has to be a lot of momentum and a lot of energy. Like, there, you know, venture ecosystems are really subject to entropy. Right there, you have to continue to devote energy to 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 fight the natural order of, uh, you know, kind of order tending to disorder, and so so that you know, there's some that I think are going to um, going to really thrive during this period, and you know, Steve Case has the whole rise of the rest thing going on, but I also think it's really there are ingredients in the, and maybe I'm just a homer on this, but there are things that exist in the Bay Area that don't necessarily exist anywhere else or certainly don't in in that concentration. One that I think is overlooked is this kind of, you know, entrepreneurial management, like people who can manage through hypergrowth is like a particular skill that is in short supply, I think everywhere else, but that, you know, I think the Lily and, and Hoffman from Greylock called blitz scaling. Um, you know, I think, I think there are very, very few places, if not, you know, no other places that where, where the talent exists to, to really kind of go through that in a systemic way. It'll happen, you know, here and there, but, um, but like the flip side of that, and I'm just trying to be a realist about it. Like, one thing that that I think this period of time we'll see is, you know, we'll look back on this period and we'll say there are a lot of people who are founders who should have been employees. And there are a lot of people who are VCs who should have been founders. And I'm thinking of that, you know, the 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 classic, you know, four-time, five-time startup company CFO who just, you know, ri- you know, rather lather, rinse, repeat. And you know, collects their their stock options and and you know stays for four years and you know manages the company through to acquisition. Um, you know, a lot of those people that who are really successful actually don't have to work anymore now. They can become mentors, but a lot of them are after one or two iterations of that becoming VCs or just leaving the ecosystem. And I think that's very deleterious. I feel like the stickiness of people in their roles has gone way down, and I worry a lot a lot about. The, the subtle implications of that. Interesting. What, what about the micro VC movement? 
so you mentioned some of the formative funds that things off. Um, we just had Tim O'Reilly on, on the program and he was talking about some of the, these similar, uh, concepts, but you know, how have you seen sort of the micro movement evolve and change? And, uh, clearly you've still, you know, stayed with it. I mean, you're still funding, uh, some of the earliest, uh, firms and some of the, the smaller firms, but I'd be curious to hear, you know, if things have changed for the better and how you've seen sort of, uh, the micro VC movement change. Yeah, it's a really, really rich question because there's so much that's gone on. And, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, we used to talk about the capital gap uh, and that's just quaint now, right? The, the capital gap was because the, there were all these VCs who were, you know, were looking to write five to $8 million checks, but entrepreneurs didn't need that much capital. Well, today there's, you know, uh, uh, there's seed funds, there's pre-seed funds, there's mango seed funds, right? We, the, the, the taxonomy is, is crazy. It's really, the, the market's really segmented. And then, um, and then, you know, you got AngelList and, and Funders Club and a lot of folks who are doing interesting stuff in, in those regards. So there's there's just a ton of capital. In fact, I know some of you calls that capital chaos capital, mm-hmm. right? So the market's really changed. And I remember this is actually a lesson. You know, one of the things I learned uh, from David Swenson way back in the day um, was uh, – or it might have been from uh, Andy Golden at Princeton. Um, the – Secret of of Yale's success, and and Andy was at Yale in the early days. Secret of the Yale Endowment success was that they got to illiquid asset classes first, right? And they built the best portfolios. And so, eighty five, eighty six, eighty seven, Yale was one of the few institutional investors really diving into to private equity. And I said, was it? You know, the question I asked was, geez, was it really hard in those days to make money? Uh, you know, was it hard to evaluate? the the players you know there was a uh, so much you know uncertainty and I, i'm pretty sure now it was andy andy just looked at me he goes it was actually really easy i go what do you mean he goes look in any space there were so few players or maybe you know we would so what we do is we'd specify an area of interest so we'd say uh you know operationally intensive, you know, mid-market buyouts or, you know, West, you know, Silicon Valley, early stage IT firms or Boston based, you know, healthcare firms, whatever the, whatever the answer was. And we'd go and visit with every one of the firms that were in the space. And most of the spaces had like 20, 30, maybe 40 firms. And pretty quickly you could figure out who the clowns and amateurs were. And then we would back two thirds of the rest. Hmm. And I go, wow, are you serious? He goes, yeah. And you, you have to realize that was like 10 managers, right? Yep. But that was, a, you know, like a third of the universe. Oh, and by the way, as a result, there was a huge survivorship bias. And nobody talks about the the handful that that fell away. But, uh, you know, IVPs and the Sequoias and the Kleiners and the and then they're all their diasporas, you know, the, the TVI, which turned into benchmark, you know, all these, you know, were part of our portfolio and huge optionality. And I said, holy smokes, a light, when I heard that, a light went off. And I said, that when I was getting into micro VC, I was like, cause I'm not smarter than the next guy, right? Like this is actually, when I started blogging, Josh Koppelman was like, look, you're not any smarter than the next guy, but you're like at least 20% funnier. (laughs) (laughs) So you'll have like a real voice and I'll go, I think it's a com, maybe a left-handed com. Yeah. So I can't go toe to toe and say like, oh, is, you know, is this fund better than that fund? You know, in a world where there are 450 micro funds, I'm not sure that I'm, you're almost testing a joint hypothesis, which is like, A, is this manager better than the next guy? And B, am I smart enough to perceive that, you know, that differential? Right. And, but rewind to 2005, man, that was a different time because there were a dozen firms and Every single firm that you did or didn't do made money, right? Like I did first round in OATV and True and uh, uh, Maples. They all made money. And I didn't do Clavier and Baseline and uh, Felicis, and they all made money. Wow. It was literally like it was it was fish in a barrel. It was awesome. And all those are great. All those folks are great investors. And the only reason I didn't do more of them was I had a committee that was was yelling at me because it, I remember I wanted to do baseline and um, 
and somebody on the committee at TIFF who shall remain unnamed, they, they usually gave me a free reign, but I'd done a bunch of this stuff. And this person said, look, you know, I like what you're doing with some of this micro VC stuff, but don't you think it's the triumph of hope over experience? And they said no to baseline. And I was really bummed out about it and it really, it, it crushed me. And I, I was really bummed to say no to Steve because he's an amazing investor in person. But I had written my investment memo for first round with a higher ceiling than actually what I had, you know, given. So, I, so basically I had written my investment memo for Twelve and a half million, which was ten percent of the fund, but I only wrote a ten million dollar check. And when they said no to my five million dollar commitment to baseline, I took two and a half of that and put it in first round, um, and that was FRC two, which you know is the Uber fund. So that you know, it worked out okay. Although all things being equal, I'd rather have the the, the relationship with Steve. Um, <laughs> To be to be honest, and yeah, you know, I don't know where I was going with that. Oh, we're t- so fast forward to today, you know, this is what I'm struggling with, and quite frankly, one of the reasons why I'm looking at, at deep science because there's just so much noise in the market, so much, you know, if you if you think of it as an, a regression, right, and and you look at all the like elements of value, um, uh, you know, the the error term in the regression has gotten so much larger because there's just so much more noise. Sure. And there are people out there, I think, who are smarter than I am, who can figure out, you know, they've got different insights or maybe, you know, maybe they've got bigger portfolios and they're spraying and praying, but I'm really committed to a concentrated portfolio. So I'm kind of like, you know what, I've got my bets for somebody to get into the portfolio, they've got to bring something really unique to the table um, because there are a lot of super smart people who I have confidence will make a lot of money that I just can't back. Interesting. You know, I don't, I don't have the data on it, but gosh, the amount of deal flow now at the startup stage, I feel like there's a parallel here. You know, the number of funds and the number of startups, it's just, it's exploded. You know, everyone has a startup and uh, it is hard to separate you know, the riffraff from, from the good ones and even better, you know, the exceptional ones from, from the great ones. Well, let me turn around on you for a second. You know, I, I feel like we're in the interrogation room. I'm just taking the, the, the spotlight. <laughs> you know, what are the like one or two things that you key on that like really grab you by the lapels where you say like, oh yeah, in all the noise that I've been dealing with in the last two weeks or what have you, here's some signal. Well, without meeting a person, I think if somebody can't express their vision in a concise and compelling way, it's mm-hmm. an immediate ding for me. And they have right. to do that over email. So to be honest with you, I get four or five decks a day, but maybe one out of 50 yeah. can do that. And so that's kind of my easiest filter. And then once you get you know, in person, I can start testing for decision-making ability, tenacity, authenticity, you know, connection with the the real problem in the customer set, but mm-hmm. um, it's it's very hard to parse without meeting people, and that's my biggest challenge. I got a deal flow team that works on filtering from afar, we call it, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, I I lose sleep over passing on things that maybe I should have met with the founder, right? Because uh, there have been deals we've done where you know my first my first look at a deck, I said this is going nowhere, right? And somehow the founder got to know me and blew me away. And those are, you know, some of our best markups doing big series A's and taking off. So, well, look, you know, this is, this is the challenge because one thing I struggle with is Warren Buffett says famously that there are no called strikes in investing, Yep. but our business is so skewed that there might be called strikes, right? Mm. If you miss something that was right in your lap, but the problem is that we're dealing with such imperfect information. And I think your, your, I love that phrase deal flow from afar. Um, and your, uh, your articulation of, you know, can somebody actually crisply describe what they're doing that shows, you know, kind of clarity of thought. And mm-hmm. I think that is a very critical, you know, that clarity of thought and focus has got to be critical for entrepreneurs who are going to be, you know, their biggest challenge is going to be focus, right? And, and, and staying on task in a world where they've got, you know, 800 balls in the air at any one moment. Um, so that's, that's a great, I love that, that answer. You, you got me off my game, Chris. I, I'm the <laughs> interviewer here. <laughs> so I'm going to flip it back around. So tell me, right. you know, I've read about sort of the way that you select and um, what you've written about it on your on your blog. But I'd, I'd love you to kind of talk more about, you know, you've highlighted these points around ability and sensibility, repeatability, authenticity, uh, which is something that 
that I love in particular, but can you tell us more about what you're looking for in fund managers? Sure. Um, so, you know, that uh, there's two kinds of, there are two prisms through which I, I look at, at managers. And so one, and they're kind of related and you just articulated one of them, but I'll drill down on it in a sec. But the first one is pretty early on, you know, in talking to people and kind of building my own, everybody's got their own process, right. And their own, uh, framework, I guess. And I started mine with, you know, people, right. Are, do the people have some kind of, uh, differentiation or, uh, particular insight or edge, I guess edge is the best way to, to, to articulate it. Um, what are they kind of best in the world at in a durable way? And then the second thing is, is, um, uh, strategy, right. And I, I don't have particular insight on strategy, right? Like if, you know, if you'd come to me to ask about crypto three years ago, I would have said like, this is ridiculous, but my job is not to say crypto is ridiculous. My job is to find the people who are finding new areas. The best new people are finding new areas. So when I talk about strategy, the main thing there is a, does the strategy make sense at a, at a macro level, um, relative to a, an agnostic, um, uh, you know, kind of worldview. And then does the group of people attacking that strategy, do that, does the strategy resonate with the people? And you'd be surprised how often people are doing things that don't really resonate with their skill sets. Um, and, and that's a whole nother discussion, but, but that's actually a real, real issue out of the people in the strategy falls the portfolio. And the portfolio you can touch and taste, like this is why I moved to California, you know. And as I think about a more decentralized startup world, like it, this actually stresses me out because am I going to have to spend, you know, I'd already spent a lot of time in Seattle, you know, New York, L.A., Toronto, Waterloo, like, you know, all the great startup hub, emerging startup hubs. Am I going to have to spend more time there to to build those networks that I have here? That's but but that's where you find out about the VCs as practitioners. Right. Entrepreneurs love talking about their businesses. They love talking about how their VCs have been helpful or not. And that's amazing. It's it's the filter. There's no filter usually. Um, then out of that portfolio falls the performance. Right. And, and it's a lagging indicator, not a leading indicator. And that's one of the problems is, you know, a lot of people approach uh, approach through the through the entry door of performance. But. My experience has always been, and I've always believed, you know, this this lagging issue is, is a real thing. And we see, you know, the, all the research and, and Antoinette Shore at MIT has done a ton of good research on persistence. And, you know, we've built this whole mythology around persistent, you know, top quartile persistence. And Antoinette has shown that top quartile persistence is actually declining over time. And so that actually is really interesting and profound if you think about it for a few minutes, but I've always believed that to be the case. What, what so, does that mean? So that means a top quartile firm. People think if you're in the top quartile with fund N, fund N plus one is going to be in the top quartile. Got it. And, and I think that Antoinette's, uh, if I'm reading it right, and I've got to go back and read it, but the latest thing, I, her latest study, I think suggests that if you're in the top quartile, I think there's only like a 13% chance that fund N plus one is going to be in the top quartile. Wow. Wow. It's amazing, right? And look, you know, when I was at Princeton, when I got there, our number one performing manager was a great historical manager. They were our number one f- fund relationship, um, as I recall it. But they'd crushed it with their $75 million fund. Their $150 million fund was awesome. Their $300 million fund was pretty damn good. Their $600 million fund started getting a little bit shaky. And then they went on to raise a billion two and a $2.4 billion fund that both were really mediocre, right? And so size is one way where people trip themselves up, but people also call in rich, right? Like they're retired on the job. People's skill sets go out of vogue. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, there's a a lot of entrepreneurs turned VCs think that their entrepreneurial experience is much more durable than it actually turns out to be. Their networks are more durable. So, so this is actually like the persistence of performance is actually why, you know, I almost don't trust it. Um, I spend more time on the portfolio and just understanding the people because we don't get to invest in assets. We invest in people, right? So understanding kind of how they're going to continue to do the voodoo that they do, Um, which is where we get to this ability, sensibility, repeatability, and authenticity. So ability is, you know, that's the same as kind of the people. What edge do they have? Like, you know, can they do this? Sensibility is like, 
you know, I mean, maybe it's not the right word. I just tried to come up with it cause it sounded kind of alliterative, but, um, but you know, do they think like investors is kind of what I'm getting at there, right? Like, you know, we're living in, in a world where all these entrepreneurs have turned investor and they don't even gesture in the direction of, of thinking about portfolio construction. They, they love these companies, but you know, somebody once, one of my, when I was doing public market stuff, somebody once said to me, look, you can fall in love with companies. Just don't fall in love with the stocks because the stocks are piece of paper, you know, pieces of paper that reflect, you know, the, the, you know, discounted future value, you know, just present value, discounted future cash flows, right? right? That's a piece of it. You can love General Motors, but General Motors stock is a completely different thing. Yep. Right. And I think that a lot of entrepreneurs turned investors don't actually get that. They just get so enthralled by the technology and they think it's going to change the world. And then you get, you know, these companies come out of Y Combinator with silly valuations and you're just like, I don't even understand how you're going to maintain any kind of reasonable cap table and how you're going to exit at any kind of reasonable multiple to make, you know, for your, your VCs to make, make, make money. So not, you know, not to kick, kick those guys, but they've definitely changed the tempo and, and driven some of this stuff. Um, so, you know, this, this sensibility point is, is hard repeatability is actually, you know, a lot of people come to me and they say, well, what are investors looking for? And I think that's the answer is how do you, you know, if I were to boil down my job into, you know, kind of one sentence, it's I spend my day trying to strip out luck from skill. Right. And now we live in a world back this back to the Buffett, you know, no called strikes question. Like we live in a, in a corner of the investing universe that's much more, you know, kind of where luck is much better rewarded. But at the end of the day, you look at the great firms, you know, first rounds, the Union Squares, the Sequoias, um, others. What makes them great is repeatability, right? They're 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 not one hit wonders. And Andy Weissman has written a lot about this, and Fred and, and the Union Square guys particularly about repeatability being driven by process, mm-hmm. right? Those guys are real process hounds, and I think that's the most underrated stuff. In everybody loves all the posts about entrepreneurs and success stories and this and that. It's a it's a nitty gritty about repeatability. That's like the the Pulitzer Prize winning blog post from those guys, Love it. Um, right? And then you get to authenticity. And, and, you know, look at the end of the day, again, we're investing in people and I want to make sure that, that those people are thinking like principals, not agents, that they're, um, that they're, that, that I understand who they are, you know, not that they're big phonies with me and big phonies with their entrepreneurs because the world has gotten so small that, you know, entrepreneurs really key on that authenticity and, 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 you know, kind of singularity of, of mission and, and resonance. And, um, and that's really important for me too, because there, there's so many people say one thing to what, you know, what, what they think I want to hear. Like I often ask people, you know, what's your definition of victory? And people say making a lot of money for my LPs. And I'm like, bullshit, you don't <laughs> stay up at night worrying about you. You stay up at night thinking about your, you know, how you're gonna, you know, buy your, place in Santa Barbara, you know, <laughs> or, or how you're going to, you know, whatever I can say all kinds of funny and inappropriate stuff. But. My wife was, my wife was just talking about buying a place in Santa Barbara this morning. <laughs> it's, it's an amazing place. Right. But, yeah. but that's, that's what organizes your energies. Right. And, and I think people try to give an answer that they think I want to hear. And that actually is really dismaying to me because I want to understand, you know, look, I get it. The best answer actually ever was from Josh Koppelman. I said, what's your definition of victory? And Josh said to me, I want to self-actualize through my work. And for people who know Josh, you know that he does. That's exactly what he does. And that's actually been an inspiration to me. Wow. Unreal. What about the other side of the coin? What are the common, if there are common reasons, what are the common reasons why you say no? You know, you see, I'm sure you see just a whole bevy of, of fund managers and pitch decks. And, you know, are there, are there certain things that people just don't have? I mean, you talked about the entrepreneurs that may, may not think about portfolio construction, but are are there other things that sort of jump out that p- managers aren't focusing on that are really critical sort of in the, in the long game here? You know, I think, I think that there are, um, there are a few things that, that really bug me. One is not thinking about 
portfolio construction. And, and this is something that all kinds of, you know, falling in love with companies and, 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 uh, and all that stuff is, is, you know, that I mentioned is, is important, but I, you know, I think one thing that a lot of venture managers don't do is they don't think about how am I going to create a, uh, an aggregate return? Um, you know, a venture level, venture type return at the fund level. And so I wrote a blog post a while back called, I think it was called all about the Benjamins. And it was, you know, I talked about this metric called return the fund equivalent. Um, and it was basically like, all right, for each company in your portfolio, what, you know, cause venture is such a power law game, you know, we're not going to hit a whole bunch of doubles here and play, you know, small ball. Like this is about home runs and, and grand slams. Um, you know, not about you know, bunting the runner over from first to second and then, you know, or hit and run, right? Sure. He's a baseball metaphor, right? And so I, I encourage all of my managers to say like, hey, um, you know, for every company in your portfolio, tell me what exit value, what enterprise exit or enterprise value exit do you need to get for that company to return your entire fund at your ownership? Yep. Fully deleted, right? And it's amazing. Like you have some people do this exercise, and they're like, "Oh my god, my median company has to ex- exit for one point three trillion dollars," right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but I, I jest. But like, and then you like put that up. You know, you know, hold the mirror up to them, and you say, "Okay, do you really believe that your average company?" You know, maybe you know, maybe this company will exit for you know two hundred fifty or or four hundred million. Um, but do you really believe that you have a chance to generate, you know, venture returns on, on, you know, the bulk of your portfolio or, you know, and so, so it's a really interesting exercise. Um, you know, the other thing that actually bugs me is, you know, I, I, I do look at, you know, kind of competitive moat and the number of people who just say our network, like, you know, I'll say like, why are you best in class? And I'll say, well, we have a great network. I'm like, well, every, I don't know anybody who doesn't have a great network, <laughs> yeah. right? Or at least, you know, who thinks they don't, right? Like, right. you know, so, right? And so that's like a lot of people's, literally like more than half my meetings, that's what people lead with. They're like, oh, we have a great network. I'm like, okay. So what I key on is like, where is your point of view different from the consensus? Because if you if you have a consensus point of view, then you're just trying to out exit. You're you're the sperm trying to fertilize the egg, and there are a million other sperm, right? I want to know like how you're gonna you know how you're gonna come up with uh, something you know kind of out of left field that where you've got conviction. Um, And and a lot of people fail that test. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Interesting. What about, uh, can you talk a little bit about some of these, you know, the companies are staying private longer, um, you know, paper gains are not converting into dollar returns, you know, how is that impacting you and the, the LP class that's investing in these venture funds, particularly those that are, are going early? I mean, you're investing in, in micro funds and, you know, timeframes are, are kind of pushing out. Maybe, maybe the outcomes are getting larger, but timeframes are pushing out. So, you know, how has that affected the way you do business? Yeah, this is, this is actually, I think, a, a huge problem across the ecosystem. I think 2018 is the year that those chickens come home to roost because we've been in, you know, a, a really long boom time. 
and you know the the periodicity of funds has been getting you know kind of faster and faster over time it's slowed down more recently for a couple of reasons but um but the you know, we went through a several year period where funds were coming back every two years and the normal cadence is, you know, kind of three, three and a half. And as a result, you know, of, of the dynamics you described in, in that, you know, which drives funds coming back fat, you know, the, the pace of investments, dri- you know, driven funds to come back faster. A lot of institutional investors that I talked to are at the very top of their allocations and they've got, you know, they're sitting on these inflated paper, you know, portfolios and the money just hasn't been coming back. And I literally will talk to people and they're like, we don't have, you know, we're 20 you know, percent above our, our target. And we just don't have any money to invest in new funds until we get some liquidity. So I think people, you know, are thirsting for liquidity so they can start recycling because the, the, the nirvana is where you're recycling the distributions, right? And there's everything's at a good pace and you're getting money, you know, coming out of the portfolio and you're putting that into, you know, capital calls. And that's been interrupted and that's really hard. And so that led me, you know, one of the kind of most hilarious moments of my life was I got to do a talk, I think it was like 2014, at the NVCA annual meeting. And here's, you know, NVCA, and it's all these guys, you know, Dixon Doll is sitting in the front row in his coat and tie, and, you know, everybody's looking really serious. And I got up there, and it was just after A16Z invested in Rap Genius. And I put up a slide that was the, you know, from Rap Genius, the lyrics to the song Method Man um, by Wu Tang Clan. And, you know, for those of you who don't know the song, at the beginning, you know, uh, I think uh, Reza and Jezza are like kind of jousting who can who can you know come up with a better mode of torturing a an adversary, and uh, I think one of the guys says, "Yo, I'm gonna I'm gonna sew your asshole shut. I'm gonna keep feeding, <laughs> feeding you, feeding you, and feeding you." And I said this, and wow. you know, Dixon Bell just looked so horrified, and I said, "You know, but that's what it's like to be an LP, right? We've got this exit sphincter that's sh- sewn shut." <laughs> Right, the the pig is not going through the snake, and so um, oh, that's great. uh, You know, the 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 exit sphincter has been like a really you know important uh, you know if off color metaphor because that's that's what we all feel. We're just gorged on these you know these, and in some you know some people's cases, it's like a company. Like I was just talking to investors, like oh my god, if Xiaomi ever goes public. Like we'll actually be able to make venture investments again, and it's it's gotten to that level. So I think 2018 is going to be an interesting year because I think a lot of a lot of venture firms have slowed their roll, but like you know LPs are kind of out of, out on the frontiers. So is it is it new LPs that are coming into the asset class? Is that why we're uh, still seeing funds? Uh... There is a lot of that. So there there's definitely a lot of LPs. You know, and, and and a decent amount of overseas money, kind of chasing both hype and and returns, um, even though a lot of those returns have been on paper. And so there's definitely a, a flow, but I think if you look at the numbers, and this has been, you know, there's been a barbelling in the data, right? We're seeing um, the middle kind of getting hollowed out. And on the one end, you've got you know maybe a dozen firms that are raising whatever they want to raise, like Sequoia here is in the market with you know five a five billion dollar fund, and they'll get that closed in a heartbeat. Um, and then on the other end, you have you have just a ton of these small funds. Although a lot of them are struggling, a lot of them are still getting raised. So you know it's kind of a combo of these of these two things driving fundraising. But I'd say the bulk of it is. You know, large funders, sovereign wealth funds, new entrants, you know, corporates, uh, you know, coming into the big funds. Got it. You know, a, a lot of folks are kind of cagey on the mic, but I can tell that you're not one of those folks. So I'm going to go ahead and ask, you know, what's the LP community like? Is it is it tight knit? Is it competitive? Do you guys play nice with each other? You know, how is that interaction? Because we think about that quite a bit between GPs and um, depending on, you know, what geo you you're in or where you invest, I, I think there's variability, but I'd like, I'd like to hear your take. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really interesting because I think this is one thing that GPs really underestimate um, the closeness of the LP community. I mean, it is, you know, there are times of the year where you see the same people 
every week for in several places for five, six, seven weeks, right? And we're about to embark on one of the, you know, the, the venture meetings. Everybody's going to be out here for a bunch of things. And I, I'm, I've been getting caught, you know, people are going to be sleeping on my couch here in Palo Alto. <laughs> you know, I mean, literally like, you know, we have dinners, you know, together, we hang out and all we do is gossip about GPs. <laughs> it's all we do, which is why it's hilarious. It always cracks me up when like a, v- a VC will call me with like an amendment request. And they're like, you know, we're, we want to extend our fund and everybody's already on board. And I'll call like the five other L- <laughs> big LPs in the fund, and I'm like, and they're like, no. <laughs> you know, one of my GPs is like, yeah, you know, I've got this. I- I'm going to raise a- an opportunity fund. I've already got everybody all lined up. And literally, I called the three largest investors in the fund. They're like, we haven't even heard about this thing. And and I and like you, you guys like, you know, it, it, it's almost silly. It's like it, that's all we do. So, you know, it is competitive. I'm I'm not sure I'm like sharing my very best idea with people until I've like invested. Um, that was a big problem we had at Princeton because we had such, such big dollars to move. And so we were always a little bit cagey and, and close to the vests. But then once we did something, we wanted, you know, kind of good investors around with us. And so a lot of LP, you know, I'm, I'm one of, there's an LP who, uh, with whom I'm playing in their member guest at their golf club. There's another LP that I have dinner with like once a month and we, we gossip. Like it's, it's pretty, if, <laughs> if GPs were flies on the wall at the average, like LP gathering, they'd be mortified. That's hilarious. I love it. Well, you know, what, what ways do you think you can grow most as an LP? You've been doing this for quite some time. Um, you seem to be somebody that is pretty self-aware. So, you know, where do you think you have the most room to grow? Well, you know, this, the self-awareness question is actually really kind of interesting because um, in like 2000, you know, I've been an LP since 2001 and, you know, you, you, you start to build, you know, kind of pattern recognition and see, see what's working, what's working and not. And I'm really tight with Rob Hayes at first round and Rob and I were sitting around and I think in like 07 or 08, Rob, Rob was like, you should be a VC, dude. Um, and I was like... <laughs> I got to tell you the reality of it, and this goes to the self-awareness is I'm actually a little bit lazy. Um, and so, you know, I don't know if I have that hustle, you know, you hear about how Mike Moritz like hustles and here's a guy who's like at the top of the, you know, the pyramid and, and he's still out there hustling and, and every, you know, a lot of people I know are, are out there hustling and constantly building, you know, new relationships and networks and building them. And I, you know, I can do like 85% of that, but I'm kind of lazy. Um, and so, but that always kind of stuck with me. And as our investors started saying, look, you got a great group of, of, uh, GPs. I'm sure that, you know, like you're so tight with so many of these folks, I'm sure they like run ideas up the flagpole. I'm like, yeah, all the time. They're like, well, why don't you do some co-investing? So since 2014, we've been doing co-investing and I've been, you know, I've done probably, uh, the firm's done 40 deals by now, which I, I've probably led like 25 or 28 of them. And, uh, I love it. And, you know, we've been, uh, we've been, uh, in a lot, of, I've been doing a lot of super early stage stuff and we've been in companies where I've been able to kind of help out, you know, plugging entrepreneurs into either other entrepreneurs or potential customers. And that's a lot of fun. And I keep thinking like, huh, maybe I should raise a direct fund and go out and just, you know, kind of, you know, do deals and whatnot. And I'm like, but, uh, but at the end of the day, I come back to the fact that I am, I'm kind of lazy, but doing co-investments alongside our GPs who are far smarter than I am and are kind enough to show me stuff at pretty early levels has been super fulfilling. And I hope to keep kind of growing that, uh, and, you know, working with entrepreneurs is so much fun. I just feed on their energy. Like one of the reasons why I'm in a, you know, in venture capital is I believe it's like the fullest articulation of the idea of America. Right. And, and it's the way in which I get to express my patriotism without being kind of jingoistic. Right. Like I, you know, this is the very, I, the Walt Whitman wrote, you know, California home of populous cities and the latest inventions. Right. Like he wrote that in 1850. Um, Hmm. You know, I see the genius of the modern, the child of the real and the ideal, wow. right? And that's, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, heir to a grand past and, uh, and father to a, a, an even grander future, right? That's, that's a stuff that really like gets me jazzed. And so, you know, when I work with entrepreneurs and see that vision and, uh, you know, I, I, it just gets me so freaking excited. 
I'm going to call bullshit on your uh, your lazy comment. I can't imagine that's true. It seems like you're the Energizer Bunny all over the place writing and contributing. But So I, I was going to ask about the co-investments, though. So you guys do co-invest alongside GPs, and do you also invest in follow-ons at later later rounds? Yeah, usually we uh, reserve uh, about a similar amount as, as we as we invested. Um, what's interesting is I'm finding that you know since we're doing a lot of early stuff, we're doing a lot of like early notes, and I don't love notes at all. And so you know we'll convert and then do that round, and then maybe have a little bit more for you know. So so it's it's fine. It's it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> I like caps, but you know, I know entrepreneurs don't. Yeah. So yeah, you it's, and me it's, both. It's a lot of fun. I, I, you know, I, I've found that to be a really fulfilling vector for energy lately. Chris, if we could cover any topic here on the program, what topic do you think should be addressed, and who would you like to hear speak about it? Ooh, that's interesting. You know, I think that one thing that we're hearing a lot about is uh is diversity and inclusion stuff and you know we're all positive on diversity and inclusion i i think that it's it's really important i've spent a lot of time talking to beezer clarkson about this um who's a good friend at, at sap ventures and we've talked about you know is there something we could do structurally as lps which is kind of a tricky thing but um but here's a question i have and i say it as an authentic question and and you know the on the the spectrum of inquiry and advocacy, this is you know one hundred percent inquiry and zero percent you know kind of cynical advocacy. I think it would be awesome to get people um, to talk about diversity and inclusion as real drivers of value add um, or alpha, um, because I think we all, we kind of almost take it as a given that diversity is a positive, but then as LPs. Um, you know, we might, I think a lot of people struggle to make the case. And I think a lot of people go to their investment committees and say, you know, we want more diverse managers just because being diverse is good. And I, I believe that there's a data set out there. And I think there's some, some people who are out, you know, kind of on the forefront of that, um, you know, the cross culture guys, uh, or, you know, kind of Aileen and, and, or, you know, Kirsten Green, some of the folks who've done, uh, you know, or Trey Vasallo yeah. with her for elephant in the room stuff, right? There are a lot of people who've done really important thinking in this regard. And I think we need to get the thinking out there, you know, beyond like, you know, what, what's the phrase? Hashtag, hashtag right? Like beyond be, being hashtag activists, like let's get the data out there so people can really, you know, kind of charge forth, um, and really make a dent here. Sure. Well, I, I know I've seen data on percentages of, uh, immigrant led businesses and mm -hmm. how it sort of destroys returns on, on a relative basis of what it should. So, you know, I bet there's similar data for diverse and balanced teams out there. Um, yeah. You know, who's actually done a bunch of research on this is first round and, uh, and, and it shows that, you know, teams with women founders, you know, perform better. So, so the data is out there. I think somebody just to articulate the case is, is all, and, you know, look, on the on the immigrant founders thing, by the way, holy smokes! You know, fifty two percent of of Silicon Valley IPOs throughout history have been you know kind of immigrant teams, you know, or teams that included immigrants. It's it's an amazing source of uh, you know of strength of our, our our country, and I fear that you know the the political climate is is really detracting from that, and makes me really sad. You know. Um, well, you know, I, I, the line I used before about Princeton, you know, ubi pani sibi patria, that is, you know, that comes from Hector St. John and Crevecourt's letters from an American farmer. And he says, that's the, you know, cry of all immigrants, right? And, uh, and Walt Whitman's, you know, talks about, I, I speak the password primeval, I give the sign of democracy, right? Like, you know, this is the, the very idea of America is encapsulated in, in, in venture capital. And uh, the more we do to create barriers to uh, to bringing the world's best here, um, the more uh, I think venture capital as a uniquely American source of strength um, will be eroded. Uh, you know, we need to we need to make sure to kind of nurture this golden goose that we've got. Awesome, Chris. What uh, investor has influenced you most, and why? You know, uh, 
I, I talked a little bit about Henry McCants at Greylock. He's he was a great um, you know great thing. David Swenson talks about optimizing discomfort. Right, that's that's really important. Um, Josh Koppelman talked about you know I learned a lot about authenticity and uh, and um, you know self actualization from Josh. Uh, you know I, I I've been thinking a lot about you know who my mentors have been. It's kind of a patchwork of people, but those I think those folks are are all up there in terms of investing. Awesome. And just to wrap up here, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? Yeah, that hit me. A lot of people are hitting me with uh, DMs on Twitter. <laughs> uh, so it's at C-D-O-U-V-O-S, at C-Duvos. Um, or my blog, Super LP, has, I think, uh, an email me tab. Um, and so hit that. And, uh, and I'm, I'm keen to write more. I, 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 my cadence of writing has gone down, but I'm, I'm trying to get, uh, trying to get back, back in the swing. Although I kind of feel like podcasts are the way to go. So you're, you're, you're five steps ahead of me. <laughs> You've talked about podcasting before. You just haven't gotten around to it. I know. Yeah. I, <laughs> it's back to this lazy thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, pick up the cadence. The man is Chris Duvos. The blog is superlp.com. If you want to be entertained while you learn, uh, check it out. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for doing this. This was a huge pleasure. Uh, this is such good fun. I, I really appreciate it. Look forward to bumping into you again real soon. Awesome. All right, that'll wrap up today's interview. If you enjoyed the episode or a previous one, let the guest know about it. Share your thoughts on social or shoot them an email. Let them know what particularly resonated with you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that some of the smartest folks in venture are willing to take the time and share their insights with us. If you feel the same, a compliment goes a long way. Okay, that's a wrap for today. Until next time, remember to over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks so much for listening. 